Hello, and welcome to episode 43 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hey, Jeff. For those of you who don't know, Carl is also the host of the 30 Love podcast, which you should check out. He's got an array of interesting guests, and I know there's a lot more great content on the way, so when you're finished with this episode and caught up with the Tennis Abstract podcast, you should... um, check out the rest of the 30 Love podcast episodes as well. Uh, We are now one full week into the 2019 tennis season, and it feels like we're already a lot further. This is a bit of tennis mayhem to open the season with six ACP and WTA Tour events, plus the Hopman Cup, and then this coming week there's two more men's events, two more women's events, Australian Open qualifying, and a handful of exhibition events. So if you missed tennis in the offseason, I'm guessing you're already over it. Uh, It does, however, leave us a lot of fresh results and topics to discuss, so I want to jump right in. Carl, I would say one of the the biggest surprises, uh, most newsworthy performances of the week has got to belong to Bianca Andreescu, who at age 18 went to Auckland, qualified for the main draw, beat Caroline Wozniacki in the second round, beat Venus Williams in the quarterfinals, and even took a set off of Julia Gerges in the final, came that close to to winning her her first tour-level event in something like the fifth one she played in her career, all of which dealing with some injuries. I think she even showed up with a bit of a cold or something. Um, how, how much do you think this tells us about a young player? I mean, it, it, does this move Andre Eskew into like the, the top tier of prospects to watch right now? I think it does. I think you know better than me, so I will uh, set you up to to answer that question because you did a pretty sophisticated analysis of how she compares to predecessors who had runs like hers this week. Well, I wouldn't say it was particularly sophisticated, but thank you for assuming that it was. Um, Yeah, well, the one thing I looked at was just the, the somewhat trivial fact that the two giants that she beat, Wozniacki and Venus Williams, are former number ones. And generally, you can assume that someone who used to be a number one player is quite good, probably still quite good. And while a lot of players have beaten a number one player at some point in their career, there aren't very many who have beaten two in the same event. Of course, not everyone has the opportunity, but lots of opportunities. Usually, they don't go so well. And I think Andreescu was the 15th youngest player of all time to do that. Uh, and a lot of the a lot of the fourteen who are younger are either the same player doing it multiple times. Names like Martina Hingis, Serena Williams, uh, really good company. Of course, there's a few people who flamed out early. And then the other thing I looked at was players at Andreescu's current ranking, and she came into this tournament ranked just outside the top 150. And no player ranked that low had ever beaten two former number ones in the same event. The only one who had done so outside the top 100 was Luisa Chirico, the American who did it in Madrid a couple years ago. And I guess that that's a warning sign that we're not exactly uh, saying that Andreescu is guaranteed to be great in the future. I mean, Chirico has, has not done anything since then, although she was older when she did accomplish that feat. Um, but I would say it's it's certainly the highlight of her career and... and, and makes her someone a lot more interesting for me to watch. I mean, I knew she was, I mean, she was on my radar. She had some solid junior results. She's, she's won some ITFs, but I mean, what I said at the, at the end of the article I posted last week was she's won a few ITF 25 Ks. She won two doubles junior slams. Uh, So she, she has some nice stuff on her resume, but to me, none of that is, is, is as indicative of future pro-level success as what she did in eight matches this week. I mean, do you think that's that, that's correct, Carl? Absolutely. I mean, the range of possible results a former doubles junior champion could have playing a former number one in singles at a tournament that matters is enormous. You really zero in on, on what kind of potential a player has with with a set of matches like that i mean just for her to get eight matches against good competition it's not like the the qualifying draw was particularly easy either uh really impressive 
Yeah, I, well, as a side note, one one general rule I use when we're talking about trivia and listing players' accomplishments is the more adjectives you need, usually the less impressive it is. And I noticed we both kind of stumbled over how to say doubles, junior, slams. So <laughs> maybe that's one too many adjectives to get too excited about. Um, one thing that popped up in the news from from a press conference with Simona Halep is, I mean, Andreescu is, is Canadian, but as you can probably guess from her name, she has Romanian heritage and she's had some interaction with Simone Halep. Uh, and Simona said that she encouraged Andreescu to move on from juniors. Um, she's had a lot of success at that level with those double slams and all. And she's 18 and a half now, so I think she could play a couple more junior slams, but I don't think she's going to. Halep said that she wished she'd moved on from juniors earlier. And I thought that was interesting. I mean, it, it certainly seems like Andreescu is ready, and there are plenty of women who have have shown themselves ready to compete on tour at age 17 or 18. Another one is Amanda Anasimova, who made the quarterfinals in Auckland as well. Uh, but at the same time, this is the era when when one of the other stories is players are, are getting older. The peaks are coming later. Careers are lasting longer. Uh, people who are in favor of, of college tennis make that argument that you know, there's no reason not to go to college, get your education, have somebody pay for your training for four years. Because you're not going to be you're not going to be having that much success on tour during that time frame anyway, so why not do something else? It seems like Simona is suggesting something exactly the opposite of that. Uh, what's what's your sense of of what's at stake with this, Carl? I mean, do you think it's it's correct to to recommend that the the best juniors move on to the pros as soon as they possibly can? Well, first, I, I'd want to know more context. Is that is that what Simona was saying, or was she saying it specifically in the case of Andreescu? Well, I think she was saying it specifically to Andreescu. Um, I don't know. I don't know what would be specific to Andreescu that would make her different from, say, another elite eighteen-year-old junior slash pro. Yeah, I mean, when you describe how Hallow said it, it sounds like it was really directly to a young Simona Halep, but since Halep can't travel in time and tell herself to go pro earlier, she's just saying it to, to everyone else. I mean, I think it it still feels like it's got to be a pretty individual decision, and it covers some non-tennis things, as well as the tennis of the player, like the, the financial situation and financial support for the player. All else equal... I can see the advantages at an age like 17 or 18. There was the period not so long ago in tennis when players were going pro at 14. And that that feels pretty different in terms of general development and, and adulthood or, or lack of adulthood. But at 17 or 18, there's, there's a lot of recent precedents for having pretty quick success. One analysis, I think we've talked a lot about how we haven't really seen a convincing analysis on whether tennis injuries are uh, are really increasing and is it right when people make calls for the game to be made safer, are they right that the game has gotten less safe, which is the premise of their calls. And a subset of, of that question around injuries is, is there a greater risk of injury if you go pro at a young age? C.C. Bellis is a player who had a lot of success as a teenager on tour, but then missed a lot of time to injury. Maybe that would have happened to her at lower levels too. It's hard to study the counterfactual, but I haven't seen a study overall of, of teenagers that tries to get at that question. Yeah, it's it's tricky. And yeah, it, it, uh, analyzing injuries in any sport is tough um, just because we're not going to get the actual medical data. I mean, not that I would know what to do with the medical data, even if I had it, but, but we're not going to we're not going to get the, the 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 best information, so we have to use proxies like names of injuries or body parts injured or time lost. But then when we start using time lost, which is one of the easiest things to do, there's just so many other factors that go into that. I mean, one of them is just the tennis calendar. So if somebody misses four months, is it four months including the off season or four months not including the off season? I mean, if someone's injured in November, how does how does that count? I mean, it's 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 a really complicated question to answer, and that's part of the reason I don't think we've we've gotten an answer. But 
it is a concern. And I think that the rules are still on the books, at least for the WTA, that players under a certain age, like the 14 and 15 year olds, can only play so many events. Uh, I know that's gone to court in at least one instance, so I, I don't know where that stands exactly. But uh, but there's there's some effort to to keep a promising 14 year old from from exposing her body to the same dangers that you know, an experienced tour pro would. So that's definitely a factor as well. I mean, again, like you say, it's impossible to know the counterfactuals. Maybe it's better to be on the pro tour with 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 pro quality physios than to be playing the same number of junior events relying on your parents or maybe one coach who doesn't know as much about it, uh, not make any money to offset those costs. I mean, it, it, it is a really difficult question to answer, uh, but it would be nice to have people who knew more than we did about it or maybe were more plugged into the tennis world than we were to take a stab at answering those. And if you're a player of a certain level, you are just by virtue of the rules of skill of the, of the game – going to play a hell of a lot more matches if you're playing at a lower level. So if, if the important unit is how many matches you're playing, uh, you know, Andreescu is not going to have eight matches in a week at, on the tour level uh, events very often. But when she was playing last year uh, a notch below, she was playing regularly like into the semis and into finals and then going the next week and doing it again. So, so maybe it's even better to to have tougher and fewer matches sooner yeah that's true uh yeah it's it's a a tough balance knowing that if you if you play at too low of a level you might not be getting challenged and you might have to play a lot of matches i've seen some some kind of tricky situations where players will be traveling on a on a different continent and then they're tired so they they're one of the tournaments they plan to enter they end up skipping so you end up skipping a week when you're when you're a you know a, a European playing in Oklahoma or something, uh, it, I don't know what effect that has on their finances, but maybe it would be better to be playing every week and winning a couple matches, but not having to play the whole run. So it will be interesting to watch her. I hope that she, the injury she was dealing with, I think there was a lower back thing she got some treatment for, and during the final, uh, I hope that all resolves itself and we can see how great she can be i mean i I, from this week i only watched the final against gurgis but i was really impressed how mature her game was i mean she um she didn't have the best footwork not the best movement but she had really it felt like she was anticipating really well she had really good defensive skills but she wasn't just a defensive player um like she she coupled those defensive skills with the ability to hit with some power, I mean, she, she's a little bit on the, I think she's a little bigger than average, so she's able to use that to her advantage. So I think that combination could could work out really well for her, for her being more powerful than your typical counterpuncher, but maybe being being more resourceful than your typical power player. Uh, but yeah, I hope we get to see, see more of her in the coming weeks, coming months, and so on. So moving on to the next WTA event, let's talk about Brisbane. Um, this tournament was won by Karolina Pliskova. She beat Lesia Sorenko in the final. Uh, I don't have a lot to say about Pliskova there, but the first match I watched of the new year was the, the round one match in Brisbane between Elise Mertens and Kiki Burtons, uh, two women that we talked a lot about in the podcast in the last year, both kind of on the fringes of the top, like around number 10 in the world. And it was a really good match. They both were, both were playing really good tennis it was really fun to watch and all i could think about was our discussion carl last week that i was kind of wishfully thinking that maybe we would we would see the wta turn the corner from this this depth and and confusion with so many great players and it's like i said that i flipped over and watched that match and i realized i was wrong there's no way the the level is too high there's too many women even at the fringes of the top five or top ten who could play so well. I mean, what I put in our show notes is I think that round one Brisbane match could have been a slam quarterfinal. It was, it was that high quality. And if you're seeing women playing that well in the very first match of the season, then I mean, we're not going to see anybody dominate this year, but we have some really good tennis to look forward to in, in 2019. Sample size of one, huh, Jeff? (laughs) Well, yes, 
a sample size of one plus the assumption that all the women ranked above them aren't going to suddenly be bad. Um, yeah, yeah, I think it, it's, a, it's a lot of inference tacked onto a sample size of one. Well, and you brought a lot of priors to it. And I, I think that you're right. And I think it's also funny that you described it as wishful thinking last week. And then the the refutation of that wishful thinking was a pretty exciting piece, <laughs> piece of evidence. Like maybe uh, we can enjoy this just as much. I mean, I mean, maybe for the bigger story or for like these conversations, it would be nice to have a different narrative. But ultimately, if it means that there are great matches, including in the first round between great players, that that's not a bad thing. It does mean occasionally you get and Andreescu in, in a final. Uh, Andreescu is a great story because she's 18, but she's also ranked 152. So th- those can be the, the trade-offs. Yeah, and I mean, personally, I've probably said this many times on this show, but I I would love the chaos. I mean, I'd, whatever you call it, uh, depth, stability, I don't know. Um, I love it when you don't know what's happening in any given week, anybody could win, upsets are rampant but i also love it when the media all agrees on one narrative and it turns out to be totally wrong so now that all the tennis pundits have caught up to this all the upsets and the potential positives of having so many great players but no dominant players now i'm ready for them for them for it to switch for everyone to be wrong about it but that sounds more like a, a personal issue i should discuss with a licensed professional so, yeah, I'm still you, getting my license. <laughs> I thought what you want is Simona dominating everyone and then chaos underneath. Yeah, I would live with that. But I'm also okay if Simona's not dominating. I mean... So last I, year was pretty great. Actually, yeah. If she can hang on to number one, win one, maybe two slams, and that allows for in the so much unpredictability then yeah that would be great but even if one player does dominate um that leaves a lot of room for for everyone else to be upset a lot of really competitive high quality matches uh, which maybe is what we were seeing in the last couple years of serena's dominance we just didn't pay as much attention to it because we had a, a figure at the top of the game who was so compelling in serena williams uh, I'm not sure if that's true. I'd have to go back and look at some results to know that. But uh, it seems like a possibility that would have gone unremarked if you have a name to focus on at the top of the ranking list. Um, speaking of names on top of ranking lists, the last WTA event was in Shenzhen, and that was won by my new favorite, Arena Sabalenka. Uh, I was all excited to talk about her quarterfinal match against Maria Sharapova, but Sharapova didn't last through the end of the match. She retired with an injury. So that was a bit of a disappointment. Uh, Sabalenka ended up meeting Allison Risk in the final. Uh, Risk has been to the Shenzhen final three times, which seems like kind of a weird trivia quirk. But it went to three sets. Sabalenka came through. She played really well towards the towards the end of that one. Uh, and couple interesting things about Sabalenka. I'm curious your thoughts on them, Carl. One is, during that Shenzhen final, the commentator mentioned that Sabalenka played more three-setters than anybody else on tour last year. Uh, I didn't know that. Maybe this was common knowledge. But uh, I think he said she played 29, which certainly sounds like a lot. And all I could think of was that a few years ago, we were all talking about Petra Kvitova and all of her three-set matches. Uh, Just flip that E in Petra around to a three and you've got her Twitter nickname. So the two things these women have in common is they're both extremely aggressive. I mean, according to the, the aggression score metric, they're basically the most aggressive players on tour. I think Petra was until Sabalenka came along and now Sabalenka is most aggressive. Uh, do you think there's a relationship between those two things, Carl, between playing three set matches and being extremely aggressive? Possibly. I think... This is sort of an obvious observation, but you have to also be really good and be effective at being aggressive because this is a counting stat, not a rate stat. So you need to get a lot of matches. You need to get a lot of opportunities to go three sets. You probably also need to to win some of those three setters to get future opportunities in the same draw. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think they're 
to great aggressive players, like really effective aggressive players, and that is what sets them apart for for that stat. I mean, the, if if you do think there's a strong relationship between the two, I'm not saying there is, but but if you had to to come up with a story that said there's a relationship between aggression and and playing a lot of three setters, it would probably be that aggressive players are klaxons going off in my head but less consistent um so they play well for a while they have a bad patch of play that all results in in maybe being the better player for a while but not always being the better player on court uh, i can see a narrative that would explain why aggressive players would be less consistent just because by being very aggressive your decisions and your shots have more to say about the outcome of every point or every game. I mean, Sabalenka, when she's when she's making her shots, she's hitting second shot winners or really strong returns. When she's not making her shots, she's missing returns and hitting bad errors left and right. So she's not even really giving the the opponent to a lot of chance to to take part. Uh, I mean, does that sound plausible to you, Carl? That if that's it, if there is that relationship, that that's the explanation that aggressive players kind of impose themselves more on on the results in any given point of the match. I guess it sounds plausible. I mean, if you think of the opposite extreme, a player who never misses but never hits a winner, then the inconsistency, such as there is in a match, maybe would come entirely from the performance of the opponent. But opponents can be inconsistent too. So that's where I'm not totally sure like you know you could have a player who on their strokes is completely consistent in what they produce and gets completely different outcomes because sometimes their opponent makes the the shot that the aggressive shot they take and sometimes she doesn't um so i think i think that's maybe part of it the other factor i'll just reinforce something i said at the start to get the most three set matches you need to win a lot of three set matches because if you kept getting one in each tournament but losing it you just wouldn't get nearly enough and maybe there's something particularly exhausting about playing an aggressive player i mean there certainly would be something mentally exhausting potentially about you know not being a factor in determining the outcome of a point but there you know you you would probably have to sprint for a lot of balls and absorb a lot of pace and maybe that takes a lot out of opponents uh, more than it does out of the player who's hitting the aggressive shots. So they're in better shape when they do reach a third set and win three set matches. Yeah. I mean, it, and it also could just, this is something you hear commentators talk a lot about that if you are playing a really aggressive player, it's hard to get into a rhythm. Um, so it might make you more inconsistent than you would be otherwise, just because you're not getting as so many shots. Um, I mean, you, against someone like Sabalenka or Kvitova, you're not going to play very many eight or nine shot rallies and you'll have a game now and then that, you know, feels like a, an Isner or Kevin Anderson service game where you barely touch the ball. So yeah, all these things to work together. I think this is something I'm going to dig into a little bit more. And one of the first steps there is just looking at whether these, these three set counts are to be expected or not. Because I mean, another thing that like you point out, rightly that in order to play a lot of three setters you have to play a lot of matches so you have to be pretty good um but maybe you can't be too good because i don't remember serena williams playing a lot of three setters you know with the players she's going to beat she beats more easily than that so maybe there's some sweet spot in the rankings which might be exactly where sabalink is right now around number 11 or something uh, where you're not you're playing a lot of players who are about the same level you're not playing a lot of players who are way better or way worse so every match could end up as a three setter just given the players levels so maybe once you control for that maybe her count isn't particularly high maybe Kvitova is at the time when she was someone for that maybe it wasn't particularly high you need to establish that before you'd even have a really good reason to start uh investigating the stories we're finding so easy to come up with Speaking of Kvitova, I think we should give her a brief shout out here. She last year, even though she didn't lead the tour in three setters because Sabalenka had, had just an enormous number, um, she had 23, which is the most she's had in a year since 2013. Now we know she missed a lot of time because of being attacked and injured, um, but still 17 and six last year. She definitely earned her nickname again. Yeah, 
Nice, and maybe one of the most likely three-set matches of the year is one taking place probably tomorrow, I think. Uh, the first round of of the Sydney tournament, which I want to come back to in a little while, is between Kvitova and Sabalenka. And they played a three-setter last year. Kvitova won 6-3 in the third. Oh, there you go. Okay, so match to watch. Um, at, probably at some time when most of our listeners will be sleeping. And certainly, Maybe not by the end of it. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, something to look forward to there. Um, so yeah, like I say, we'll come back to Sydney, but um, yeah, that could be some exciting tennis to watch. Certainly, some uh, some tennis that will require new balls every seven games, uh, regardless of the rules. So there's three WTA tournaments in the books. There's a lot to talk about on the men's side as well, and I want to start with the the two fifty in Pune. India, which was won by Kevin Anderson, but the story of the week is not Kevin Anderson. It rarely is. Um, it is the man Anderson beat in the final, Ivo Karlovich, who's almost 40 years old. Um, he reached the final. I think he's the, the, the oldest finalist since Ken Rosewall. Um, he was the oldest semifinalist at a tour event since Jimmy Connors. Uh, we talked about him quite a bit in an episode towards the end of last season. Uh, I wrote something about the, the staggering number of tie breaks he was playing. But I feel like we need to get into this again. I mean, this is pretty outrageous. It's one thing for him to be competitive at challengers like he was in the second half of 2018, but to be reaching a final, and he did it without just winning tie breaks. I think his first two matches, um, he won four sets with at least one break of serve, so no tie breaks there. Uh, I mean, Carl, do you. Do you see anything stopping this guy? Is there any reason we won't be having the same conversation in five or ten years from now? Wow, I love that scenario. Uh, <laughs> it's possible. I mean, he... Different players have different attitudes about the physical impact of playing serve and volley. I've heard Andy Murray make the case for it being pretty taxing. But Karlovich seems to thrive and, and be able to play three tiebreak sets playing that style. And I, I think that's that's half of the equation for his longevity. And the other half is he doesn't have to put a lot into return games. I mean, that's that, that makes it sound like if he put more into return games, he'd be a great returner. And I, I don't think that's even close to the case. But <laughs> no. he, he knows he's going to hold 90-something percent of the time. And so he plays a very Sabalenka style of returning. He he goes for extreme shots. If he's down in the game, he goes for even more extreme shots. He, he chips and charges occasionally. He's just hoping to string together a couple of points and then make it make it interesting. And if he doesn't, he's ready to move on to his next service game and probably move through that very quickly. So it's, a, it's definitely a winning formula for him. I, there aren't many like him. Like Isner is really the only one who comes to mind. Maybe Anderson is another, although he has a very different game style from those two. But... Isner doesn't serve in volley, and, and it's harder to imagine him being uh, in the final of a tournament a month shy of age 40. Even Atlanta? <laughs> well, I think he's just going to get buys to the final when we have a whole new system in 2024 or whatever. Well, it, I don't know whether the, the question was prompted by Karlovich's performance, but someone in Auckland where Isner's playing this week asked him about his future plans, and he said... He can see himself playing for another three or four years and maybe some years after that. So he's 32. You're the age expert, Carl. Is that right? He turns 34 in April. Okay, so he was 32. That's probably why I was thinking ago. that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so he's almost 34. So he's talking about playing to 37, 38 and maybe not stopping then. Uh, some people like me who might be on record not loving John's game won't be thrilled about that but no that's not true jeff everyone gets more lovable as they age it's just the nature of sports fandom actually i'm so glad you mentioned that because i didn't put that in my show notes did i no i was just before we started recording i was watching some of the the doha final between burditch and bautista agu and i was marveling the fact that i somehow have these warm feelings for tomas burditch and I don't have anything against him. I've never had anything against British, but I've never been a fan. But as soon as he gets older and is gone for a while and he comes back, wins a couple of matches, suddenly I love the guy. What is going on here? I mean, we've, we've talked about this before. I think I wrote an article about it years ago. But, I mean, you agree with the general idea there that you're not just 
making a joke, right? That this really happens. Like we do tend to like players more as they stick around, right? No, I was definitely not joking. I mean, it's I was joking in the sense that it it does feel like a strange phenomenon because they're the same person, although people do change. But I think the biggest factor is what you touched on with with Burdick that it's a feeling of scarcity. It's like we didn't their injuries are more common uh, drops in rankings, so they they just don't play the same tournaments or play deep in the same tournaments and suddenly you're thinking oh this might be one of his last big matches that I watch um and we've I somehow am always taken by surprise when players announce their retirements like I never see it coming I mean some of the some of the players who announced it last year totally made sense once they did but I was still sad when I heard it like oh I won't be seeing him or her around the slams anymore so I, I think that's the biggest thing. I mean, I, I've heard other theories like people identify more with players because they too are aging and that's very specific to a certain age range of fans. But I really think it's more about there's not like an endless uh, list of, of verdict matches ahead of us to enjoy or not enjoy, but maybe just a handful. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I remember writing something about this years ago and I think my main argument was just that it's familiarity. Um, we tend to, I mean, even whatever, even if there's no reason to identify with them, really, just the fact that Burdich is a known quantity, as long as he's not really offensive, which I mean, certainly Burdich isn't. He seems like a likable enough guy. Uh, just the fact that we know him and have some history with him, it, it's enough to be like, oh, glad he's back. It's like it's like seeing a sort of friend, sort of acquaintance. Like the more they're around, you're like, oh, I'm glad he came along. I'm glad to see him tonight. Um, and that's yeah, explanation. There's some me. comfort there. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense too. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm guessing uh, Gilles Muller was one of the ones you didn't see coming last year, right? I can't tell. If, is is he really retiring? I must have missed it. Yeah, yeah, he retired. That's that's that that is not one I saw coming. Yeah, because he seemed sort of in the Karlovich mode of like he could go on for a while playing that style. Well, I also remember the year that we were both at Wimbledon Qualies and you were interviewing him about some Qualies themed story, and he wasn't very young then. He'd already made a long comeback, and I think you quoted him saying something like he was never going to play Qualies again, which ended up mostly being true. Um, but that wasn't that many years ago. So someone who was playing qualies not that long ago seems like they should be around for a while, even if they were already getting up in years at that point. Yeah, that was probably 2014 when he qualified and then made it to a second round match against Federer. Yeah, that sounds right. So yeah, so that's another topic I'm hoping to dig into, actually quantify some of this stuff, look at whether really tall guys, whether players with uh, really good serve stats do last longer and maybe even figure out a little bit why. Uh, another guy who, I mean, he doesn't quite fit that mold, at, like few players fit the Karlovich mold, but an, a, another older player with a big serve is Joe Wilfred Sanga, and he also had a solid week this week. Not as good, but he was playing in Brisbane. He knocked out Alex Dimonor, which... Pretty good win for someone who hasn't played much coming back from injury. Um, before we get into the Brisbane final where Nishikori beat Medvedev, I'm I'm curious what you think about Sanga, Carl. I mean, he, he had so much promise for so long. I mean, you can still see it in, in a good match he plays now. I mean, I, I don't expect him to, to win a slam at this point or even get very far in one. But you can see just the raw power, the athleticism. I mean, he has so much going for him. Uh, what do you think stopped him from from becoming maybe not someone challenging the big four, but having at least the kind of results that Stan Wawrinka has had? Well, the results Wawrinka had were uh, often against the big four, and he's he's really. I mean, you say someone like, but he's kind of the anomaly. Like, it, there were two paths to breaking into really the big three. Like, I think we we call them the big four, but we don't mean it at the slams. Yeah, we and call Murray's... them the big four because we often include British journalists. <laughs> yes. Uh, and also because outside the slams, it's pretty fair. Like Murray was right up there with them or at least close to them for for years. But, you know, Murray's path to finally getting three slam titles was just making a, a ton of finals. And Vavrinka's was 
just playing at a level a notch or two above his his usual top level at a few slams. Sanga ran into the big four plus Vavrinka at the slams. I mean, that's kind of his story. Like he um, he wasn't able to beat them in big matches. He made it. He's made six semis at slams, lost five of them, won one, and lost in the final to Federer. Um, I, I don't have an easy answer for why that was, why he couldn't break through. Like, certainly he did beat all those players, I think, several times away from the slams. Uh, it could be the enormous pressure of being a French contender decades after the last time a, a Frenchman won a slam title. But um, I, it always seemed like two things were somewhat lacking for him in big matches and is very anecdotal and not data driven one his backhand is just so vulnerable and and so easy to pick on for the top players in big moments and two some curious tactical decisions i remember a series of matches where he was repeatedly going for half volley drop shots (laughs) which are so cool when you pull them off and so unlikely to be pulled off um and, you know, one can be overly influenced by a couple of matches and by a couple of skeptical commentators, but it really did seem like that was a tactic and not something he was forced to do. And that not to the extent maybe of Gael Monfils or Curios at times, but it did seem like the pleasure Tsanga got from pulling off one of them was worth the pain of missing five of them. And that's not a good formula for winning matches, even if it's a great formula for highlights. Yeah, that all seems fair. I mean, it, it's clear the talent was there. Like you say, he scored some really big wins away from the slams. Uh, but yeah, it, it, it was constantly frustrating. He couldn't put it together a little bit more. It certainly would have been nice to have someone like him who was a little bit more of a threat at the slams. Um, but I'm wondering if we're if we're coming to the point of having some of the same conversations about Kay Nishikori. Uh, someone who's also made one slam final. Uh, and Nishikori won this week. He beat Medvedev in three sets in the Brisbane final. And it was his first title in, I think it was 34 months or something. Um, I'm really good at reading the, those headlines and really bad about remembering the numbers in them. Uh, but I do know that he had lost his last nine finals, including the last one, which was in, in Tokyo a few months ago, against Medvedev. So You know, in between, he lost yet another one to Kevin Anderson in Vienna. Ah, oh, he did. Okay, never mind. So, a recent one to Medvedev. Uh, the, the, the main point is that he, won, he lost the nine in a row. And even just taking Anderson and Medvedev as two examples, he's often losing them to players that at least I would have thought he was better than. I would have favored him in both of those matchups. Um, maybe not Anderson on indoor hardcourt, but at least close. So, I mean, at one point, I mean, this is years ago now, but at one point Nishikori was, like, the great hope to be, I mean, he, he was, like, next-gen before next-gen was a thing. People thought he was a future number one. Nick Boliteri was talking him up. I mean, he had a lot of injury problems, but I mean, he's accomplished a lot in terms of Japanese tennis, but he hasn't really broken through. It doesn't seem like he's on the cusp of doing that. I mean, do you see his career as kind of Sangha-like in that there's, there's all this talent that really isn't going to be fulfilled? Yeah. I, I, and I think your comparison of their achievements is, is spot on, like very similar overall results. I, I think two things that make it a little unfair to Nishikori, well, maybe three things. One, he's four years younger, so probably still has more chances to to change that. And it wouldn't surprise me if he still went on to win a slam. I mean, he had a, he had a really good season last year to, to rejoin the top 10. He's also had a lot of injuries, which have just made it hard for him to sustain ranking and sustain results. And he's also much smaller than Sangha. So, I mean, if you took Nishikori's game other than serve and attached it to a serve, the average serve of someone, I don't know, four inches, five inches taller, he probably would have won a slam title or two by now. Um, 
or or ten because it's kind of describing Novak Djokovic. Yeah, yeah, or but also kind of Murray. So somewhere, somewhere. Okay, so at least a, at least a few. <laughs> yeah. Um, the the final stat is fascinating to me. I mean, I saw that and thought how funny our definitions of clutch can be because for a while there were a lot of there was there was this narrative around Ishikori that he was incredibly clutch because he he won deciding sets at a rate higher than everyone, including I think Djokovic was a close second. But yeah, he, he, had, also... he had some ridiculous streak. I wrote a post about it years ago, but he had the longest streak or the second longest streak ever of consecutive deciding set matches won. Yeah, which gave him an overall career percentage that was staggering. And then you could also say, well, winning big matches is a measure of clutch and there are no bigger matches than finals. I I was curious what you said about he, he should have beaten Medvedev when they played in Tokyo and maybe Anderson, that was even... I think that's probably true. Overall, if you look at his opponents in those nine finals, it's a pretty impressive bunch. I mean, it's Nadal twice, Djokovic twice, Chilich, Dimitrov. I think the one he probably would regret most is losing in straight sets to Gol- Dol- Dolgopalov in Buenos Aires on clay a couple years ago. Um, then again, that's not that big a tournament. So I, it was probably a combination of a lot of factors. I, I did also want to see if he was losing them in three sets because that would run counter to the other narrative. And I guess it doesn't because he was mostly getting straight setted in those finals. He only went to three sets once. Um, But I mean, those things feel a little fluky combination of tough opponents and a couple of bad days can explain it. And I wouldn't be surprised if he went on and won seven of his next 10 finals or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I really like watching finals. Um, they, obviously, they are important matches. You can rely, even in some of the the most out-of-the-way tour stops, you can rely on a good crowd at most of them and an, often an involved crowd. So there is something that pulls all those finals together. But like you say about the Buenos Aires final, they're not always super important matches. I mean, points-wise, a 250 final is basically round 16 at a slam, right? That sounds right, yeah. Maybe we, less. We wouldn't we wouldn't highlight round 16 at a slam as a reason for or against a a player's clutchiness or their career achievements unless, you know, it was Federer and he won, I don't know, 65 in a row or whatever Federer did. Um, And in prize money, they're probably even less at a tournament like Buenos Aires. So, so yeah, some of those don't really matter that much. Uh, Even this, this one from, from yesterday in Brisbane Seems like a big match, but I mean, even right now, it doesn't feel like it has really shifted the narrative of Nishikori's career. I mean, it's a nice result for Medvedev and another sign that he's an up-and-comer, but uh, but it's, it's not as big a deal as if Nishikori played, again, a, a really dramatic fourth-round match against a, an equally good player like maybe Dimitrov, or if he, if he went on and made the semifinals. Like, that would be more important than this Brisbane title. So I think we can get carried away with the final stats just because they're... They're easy to analyze. They always get covered in the media. It's easy to watch them, things like that. Um, yeah, it, it brought to mind how I was zeroing in on Sangha and semis and finals of slams. But if we did look at his round of 16 results, he's 15 and 10. So clutch player, big matches. Like, it, <laughs> you know, maybe he's not unusually bad later in slams. He's just unusually good at a round of 16 matches. Yeah, and later in slams, it's so difficult to evaluate players because the players we're curious about usually don't have that many results. They're usually against the very best players. So it's tricky to talk about these guys. Um, in the in this sort of second-tier class of Sangha and Ishikori, maybe Burdich as well. Uh, maybe we'll get into that in a, a few minutes when we're talking about Burdich. Um, one more thing about Nishikori. Um you pointed out he he had a really solid 2018, kind of a, a step back into the, the 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 next group of of top players after the the very best. And one factor in that was he was really good in tie breaks. Uh, I wrote a long piece on Tennis Abstract last week about the effect of of tie break luck, which also included some tie break results from last season. And he was 17 and five in tie breaks last year. And generally, when someone is that good, 
in tie breaks. Maybe a little bit of it is because they're just good overall. Uh, it looks like my numbers say he should have won 12 and a half out of 22 tie breaks. So he should have been 12 and a half and nine and a half. So let's say 13 and nine. Instead, he was 17 and five. So he won four, four and a half extra tie breaks. Um, in, if you if you buy into my my findings that 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 extra four tie breaks is basically luck, we can expect that to go away. Um, do you think we can expect K to take a small step back this year when he loses the effect of that mild season long tie break luck? Counteracted by his newfound luck in finals. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard to control for everything else that could change about him this year, including that he'll start with better draws right from the start of the year because of his ranking, which he got in part from his tiebreak luck, which includes, if my count is right, 13 straight one toward the end of the season. So, yeah, I expect him to regress because your findings show that it's it's all fluke and, and everyone, not everyone regresses, but there's no real correlation from year to year in tiebreak overperformance or underperformance. So, yeah, I expect that he will lose some close matches, but that he will be going deeper into tournaments just by virtue of not having to face top players as early. Yeah, and like four luck-driven tiebreaks, according to what I wrote in that post, that translates to about two matches over the course of the season. I think I might have approached that a little bit wrong because um, I was using an assumption that matches are always 50-50 going in and and weighed the importance of sets based on that assumption. So I think that's a little bit high. So we're talking about maybe one and a half matches over the course of the season. So I'm guessing that other effects will will swamp that out. But yeah, like you say, the, the seeding will help, um, but the, the tiebreak is, is... Luck is probably not going to to help anyway. He can't expect to go 17-5 and five once again. Um, although now that I've made that pronouncement, he probably will. It will be, <laughs> well, it will be even more shocking when he does so. Um, so I, I promised a minute ago to talk about Burditch. Let's get into Doha, where I would say one of the biggest stories ended up being Tomas Burditch when going in the big story was supposed to be Djokovic. Uh, we mentioned Burditch a little bit earlier he got to the final he lost to Bautista Agu in another three-setter I I think I've got this right that all six of the events this last week ended in with three set finals which is pretty cool I guess but I've, I've watched most of that final now he looked really solid I mean he Burditch I mean he didn't look like he'd missed a lot of time um, it, it's interesting to watch him when you haven't watched him for a while because he has such easy power. I guess that's what commentators have been saying all along. But it doesn't look like he's making a lot of effort. But then when you see a winner come off of his racket, it's, he's hitting as hard as almost anybody. Um, I, I guess it's always tough, Carl, to evaluate players coming back from injury when we don't know that much about it. But at this point in his career, Burditch is, is in his 30s. He wasn't exactly um, fighting for slam titles before the injury. What do you expect from him now that we've seen him come back with a pretty strong first week. I think we could see him win some small titles, go deep at some bigger tournaments. I mean, he was in the top 20 when he got injured last year. And, you know, we really didn't see, I'm guessing based on the results that he wasn't fully healthy after since Miami, even though he played about five tournaments afterwards, he only won one more match. So it, it really been a while that, since we'd seen what Burdick could do, but this is the guy who just a year ago made the quarterfinals at the Australian Open and played a decent match against Federer. I think Federer was really good in that match, and it wasn't a discredit to Burdick to lose it in three sets. So we've seen, you know, normally, maybe maybe five years ago, if I'd guessed, I would have guessed, well, Burdick is 33. He's not, he's not going to come back to that level, but We've seen other players around 30 or older come back from long uh, injury breaks from the game and and be competitive. And yeah, I am a lot more bullish because in his very first event back, he made it all the way into the third set of a final. 
Yeah, it, I'm glad you mentioned that Australian Open last year. Uh, I, I remember from from um, I don't remember the contest context actually, but I think at the Australian Open last year he had a a better Elo rating than Marin Cilic. Uh, so Elo thought he was even better than his ranking before he lost that time to injury. Um, Elo's going to be a little bit confused now. If you're right that he was playing while injured and had more losses than expected then, but yeah, I mean he he seems, I mean certainly like he can be back in top twenty form, and we know he can play well in in best of five matches. So I'm with you there. I think I think we could see some good stuff from British this year. Um, I wanted to talk more about Djokovic, but I also see that we don't have a ton of time left, and there are other things I want to talk about more. So. I'm sure we'll have other occasions to talk about Djokovic this year, probably very soon. Um, but I promised earlier we'd come back to the this week's WTA Sydney event. There's an ATP event in Sydney as well, but the, the women's event is a lot stronger. There's not a lot of top men, maybe no top 10 men playing this week anywhere. But the WTA side in Sydney is very different. I mentioned earlier that Sabalenka and Kvitova are a first-round match, which means that Sabalenka isn't even seeded. Uh, even the even the wild cards and lucky losers are good. I mean, the wild cards are Stozer, Gavrilova, Tomljanovic. Uh, the lucky losers, the first two were Johanna Conta and Monica Puig. I mean, this is a really, really high-quality tournament. Um, and... What I want to talk about, Carl, is the gap between Sydney and Hobart, because I mean Sydney's a premier, Hobart international. There's a uh, so that means there's about twice as many points on offer in Sydney and a lot more money. But the the draw in Hobart is so weak that there are players who were playing qualies in Sydney who could have been seated in the main draw in Hobart. And it isn't even close. I mean, Alexandra Sasnovich, who was the top seed in Sydney qualifying, she's ranked 30th. Uh, I think she would have been in the top four seeds in Hobart. I mean, almost all the qualifying seeds in Sydney would have been seated in the main draw in Hobart, which is just outrageous to me. I mean, do you have any explanation, Carl, for why it, basically everyone is choosing Sydney? Uh, this is my ignorance. Is there no kind of requirement that if their ranking is high enough that they that they have to play Sydney? I don't think so. I think totally that, open choice. That's a good question, though, because there are some some bonuses for playing a certain number of premieres over the course of the season. But I think that only applies for top ten players. Uh, I see. I think that's right. So that that would explain why the top ten are all in Sydney. That makes sense. Uh, but that leaves a lot of other questionable choices, like all those women who chose to play Sydney qualies instead of Hobart. Yeah, I mean this this is a little bit like our Andreescu discussion. It's like, w- would you rather play more match, a higher number of expected matches, which you would get in Hobart, against weaker competition for less money and ranking points, or is better preparation? Uh, for the Australian Open, you know, getting maybe only one match, but it's a really tough competitive one. And I, I guess the way I stated that question, the premise is that the players are optimizing for their best chance of being in the best condition going into the Australian Open and not for ranking points and prize money this week. Um, and I, I think that's what we would mostly expect the players in the ranking band that we're talking about who would face that tough decision um, to be to be thinking at this stage leading up to the Australian Open. But, you know, I think for some of them, a title would be just as big as like winning a couple of rounds in Melbourne. So I don't know if that's completely right. Yeah, I, and it could be that it, it just broke this way because players expected the, the cuts to be a little different. I mean, it isn't like every player gets to look at all the information we have now when they make the decision, all they can really look at is the last few years. And some of them probably aren't even making an analytical decision. They're just going for other reasons. Uh, Maybe they've heard weird things about Tasmania being scary and they're going to Sydney for that reason. But that leads me to another question I had is in Doha was a a little bit unusual amongst the, the tournaments last week in that there were no first round 
buys. So Djokovic, for instance, would have gotten a buy at either of the other two tournaments he would have played, but he had to play a first-round match in Doha. And most everyone in Sydney has a first-round match. They're, they're buys for the top two seats, so Halep and Kerber don't have to play the first round in Sydney. But, I mean, do you think that could be a factor that players are keeping in mind? Or is it something that, that players, someone like Djokovic might actually want, is to have no draws so they have one more match against probably not a very strong opponent in their Australian Open prep? It does seem like some of the most prestigious warm-up tournaments have that format. And yeah, the the guarantee of... It's not just the guarantee of matches, but you get that first match much earlier in the week. So if you decide you only need one or two matches and you want to withdraw, you can do that sooner. Uh, Committing to playing a a, um, a tournament where you have to... um, wait till Wednesday or Thursday even to get your first match is maybe not the best way to prep when a slam is looming. Yeah. This is something that I wish the the journalists of these tournaments would ask more often, um, or somehow we would find out what all the thinking is going into these decisions because they, they do have a, a lot of impact and it's, it's tough to, I've made some preliminary attempts, but it's tough to, to quantify what the right decisions are leading up to a slam and some of it's particularly difficult because we don't know what players are thinking or what they're expecting. We don't know whether withdrawals are strategic, whether they really do need to withdraw. I mean, there's, there's so many factors that are, are tough to tease out. Um, but, but in the long run for so many of these players winning a tournament in Hobart would do so much more for their ranking than one match in Sydney or one or two matches in Melbourne probably would do. So I'm guessing there are players who aren't thinking about this stuff as much as they should. Um, but that's all I really wanted to talk about with Sydney. I guess one more thing. I, I noticed that Simona Halep's first round match is potentially against Ashley Barty. And checking my ELO ratings, which are a little bit weird right now because they're knocking Halep down some for missing the end of the season due to injury. But regardless of what you think about that, they're very bullish for Ashley Barty. Right now they have Barty at number three in the ELO ranking, so technically they even have her as a slight favorite over Simona Halep if they end up playing in the second round. Um, I think you're a pretty big Ashley Barty fan, Carl, but I'm guessing you're not on board with her being the third best player in women's tennis right now. Uh, I mean, what do you think about that? I think what we've said all along that the top women are so tightly bunched that we rank things because it's interesting and we have to, and, and that's what tennis does, but it's kind of a toss up among a lot of them. I, I would definitely, if I were forced to rank, I would not put Barty third. Uh, I probably wouldn't put Sabalenka first either, despite all of our, our fandom for her. Um, but I also think like we're, we're talking about small differences. I mean, between, Number one and number 15, it's a 95-point range in ELO. And let's see what ATP is. Between one and 15, it's a 260-point range. <laughs> wow, yeah. Um, and you would only need to go from one to five to get a range bigger than you get in the WTA from one to 15. So, yeah, I think it's like, it's like is it 51, 40? I mean, you, you would know better than me what that translates into in terms of uh, – predictions for a match between any two of them but i think it's not it can't be much beyond like 55 45 yeah i think it says on my elo pages what it is for 100 points and it's 63 percent or something okay so let's just sabalenka against savastava would be about 64 percent which sounds about right actually to me um so yeah i i agree with all that i i've I would love to see Barty become the third or fourth best player on tour. <laughs> but I, yeah, I don't think she's there yet. But yeah, like you say, there's such small margins between those players. Uh, the Australian Open could completely jumble with the current top 10 or top 15. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, that's a, a good place to end, I think, because Carl, I need to thank you for giving me the new slogan for tennis abstract which is we rank things because it's interesting and we have to 
Uh, you can expect to see that on the front page as soon as I, I uh, redesign that a little bit. Um, so yeah, we'll be back next week to talk about what actually happens in this tremendous uh, premiere event in Sydney, as well as take a look at the Australian Open draw when that is out. Uh, thanks everyone for listening. Thank you, Carl, for joining me as always. Thanks, Jeff. And yeah, we'll see everyone next week. Enjoy the tennis.